Good evening. While the intense rounds of diplomacy are continuing, the German Chancellor today is in Moscow with Vladimir Putin, no doubt making sure whatever happens, Germany still gets its natural gas, without which its industries would close down. Boris Johnson says there are mixed signals. On the one hand, the Prime Minister says an avenue for diplomacy is open, but on the other, the PM points out there are some very bad signs, including the building in the last few days by the Russians of quite significantly sized field hospitals. Now, the US intelligence networks tell us that the invasion could begin as early as 1 a.m. UK time tomorrow morning. So, is this war inevitable? Well, I'd like your views on that, please. Farage at gbnews.uk. I still don't think that it is inevitable. I don't think Putin really wants to do this. I think there are two really quite key goals for Vladimir Putin. The first is to sow division in the West. And boy, he's doing that pretty effectively uh, as the Baltic states and Poland are barely on speaking terms with the Germans at the moment. It's interesting, isn't it, that Schultz, the German chancellor, will not talk about sanctions in any way at all. Boris Johnson sounding very tough about what would happen with Russian money based here in London, be it in property or be it in bank accounts. And secondly, I think what Putin wants is some sort of concession from the West, some sort of realisation uh, that Russia does not like the ever eastward encroachment of the European Union and indeed of NATO. And I was here last night suggesting that if we want to avoid this war, we are going to have to make some compromises, suggesting that if you seek a solution to a crisis, you have to try and put yourself in the mind of the other person on the other side to work out what is it they're thinking, what is it they're wanting. You see, the thought of Ukraine joining NATO is to Putin, is to the Kremlin, a little bit like the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse. They see this as us encroaching upon them and threatening them. Now, somebody I read in today's Daily Mail who was also suggesting perhaps negotiations, perhaps there could be a deal. And it's interesting because Putin himself has said that he does want to talk not just about Ukraine's role in the future in NATO, but also about the ballistic missile bases in Poland and Romania. Well, Mark Armand, director of the Crisis Research Institute in Oxford, was in the Daily Mail today, a big full-page piece, centre-page, making similar suggestions to me last night that maybe we should make some form of compromise. And Mark Harmon joins me now. Good evening, Mark, and welcome. Good evening. I don't know what kind of feedback you've had today from your article. Um, I know that from the comments I've been making over the last couple of days, I've been called an appeaser, um, a Putin lover. Um, I want to give in. And somehow, you know, we, we heard Liz Trust this morning. This is all a big show of strength. Um, yeah. But give us your idea of how you think we can negotiate our way out of military conflict. Well, as you said, to some extent, we may not like Mr Putin, we may not trust him, but not just Putin, but any Russian leader I can think of liberal Russians like Boris Nemtsov, who was murdered seven years ago, would be horrified by the expansion of NATO to only 400 miles from Moscow. Remember Nemtsov pleading with Mrs. Thatcher to use her influence to say that this was going to kill the liberal cause in Russia because they would be uh, produced, they would be tainted with the brush of being the 
spokesman for the West. And as I said, one man was killed. And so we have to face the problem that sometimes you have to deal with people you don't like and you don't love. But we, we could take, as it were, Putin as his word. He said he wants a new treaty regulating the relations between Russia and NATO, not just about Ukraine. And so we could say, well, here is a proposed treaty. Let's discuss it. We would make certain concessions or certain acts that would reassure you, but you would have to also do things with your missiles, with your forces, that would reassure us. It's possible, as we saw in Cuba in 1962, to have a situation where Kennedy did quietly withdraw some American missiles from Turkey, and the Russians, of course, had to climb down and take their missiles out of Cuba. But it was a situation that was very tense, but it was resolved in an adult way. And I think at the moment, the test beating and the attempt to show that we are not going to be pushed around makes one wonder, are we really as confident, are our governments as confident as they like to say? After all, we've seen the Americans get out of their embassy in Kiev. The British embassy has been wound down a bit. None of this reassures the poor old Ukrainians that were stuck in the middle. No, well, quite, quite. And, and are, we, are we somehow, is the West somehow lacking real leadership? And I, I say that in the context of President Biden's unilateral withdrawal from Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul. Um, are the Americans kind of absent in a sense when we would have expected them, wouldn't we, to take the leading role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, the Americans have sort of have wafted backwards and forwards. They did at first begin to talk, as it were, over the heads of everybody directly with Putin. And obviously, Moscow wants to talk to Washington. It wants to be treated yeah. unequal. But then more recently, we've seen this parade of people, most recently, the Gun Chancellor Short Moscow. And it's a bit confusing because Schultz this evening has said in, in his statement of the German press, there's no way that Ukraine's going to join NATO. We might as well accept that. Why are we risking having a war about something that everybody knows is not going to happen? It has to be said, this is a slightly absurd situation. As you said earlier, Germany has huge economic interests, gas that it gets from Russia, cars and all the things that support Russia, that it doesn't want to see its nose cut off despite its face. But there is this basic problem that one part of this issue about NATO and Ukraine joining NATO is something that we know that almost certainly the Germans and the French veto has to be agreed by everybody. Nobody can just say, oh, I've applied, you have to let me in. It's a club that all the other members can let you into. And so are we not risking a war, a war which may be fought over, over Ukrainian territory, but it'd be a terrible war, uh, over something which isn't actually very realistic? Then there's this broader question you were raising, that the Russians say that anti-ballistic missile systems, various modern weaponries America have backed Trump and Biden still have withdrawn from various of the old Cold War arms control agreements, means they have a sense of uncertainty. And of course, they are now putting us into a position where we have a sense of uncertainty. What exactly are they going to do? You have Boris Johnson talking about all the various things that my satellite is seeing, field hospitals being set up and so on. Maybe the Russians are going to do something dangerous and and rather foolish, in my view, but maybe also they are just squeezing. Yeah, and well, that's... Are, as it were, yeah, I mean, that's my sense of what they really want to do, but I guess there's always a risk, isn't there, that if you've got large numbers of men deployed on a border, um, you know, war could break out accidentally. I mean, that's not beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, Mark, what is it about... In 2008. What is it about Western leaders? Is it... Is it fear of being accused of appeasement? Is that why they're not talking properly, as you would like to see with Vladimir Putin? Unfortunately, can we say we have a very narrow historical window? We only know about the Second World War, we know about Munich. Now, these are very important developments in recent history. They shaped, in many ways, the continent of Europe for the next 75 years. 
But if you look at everything as though the person you're negotiating with, you're arm wrestling with is Hitler, somebody who's totally aggressive, cannot be dealt with, then you risk having to have wars all the time. And, you know, we've seen in a sense the caricature of chimpot haters of the new Hitler. And I have to say, whatever is wrong with Mr. Putin, we, we can think of the charge list as, as long as our arm. He is 69. Old men don't start wars gratuitously. It's, you know, I'm afraid to say Alexander the Great, Napoleon were long dead by the time Mr. Putin came to power, let alone his age. So we have to think that he is calculating. He's ruthless, he can be cruel, but he's not suicidal. And okay. we have to never ask, are our, are our politicians risking uh, provoking a conflict which we don't really need and actually raising all these states, as you say, which in a sense then divide the West? Because as we can see, the French and the Germans are not very enthusiastic. Where are the Spanish and the Portuguese? All sorts of the Italians are all quite oddly lying low. The East Europeans have all sorts of reasons for not liking and trusting Russia, which we can all understand the historical yep. reasons. But we begin to find that Europe, the European Union, the European part of NATO, and then transatlantic alliance is being actually put under pressure, which could be much more damaging to us than if we are able to come to some kind of deal, which will require a little bit of swallowing pride, but also require the Russians to. And if we can get them to agree to that, it's worth doing. Because the other, as you say, the real risk is somebody on the ground, some Ukrainian fires a mortar and kills a few Russians, yeah. some yeah. Russian separatist in the Donbass fires a missile and kills a lot of people in Ukraine, and it all spirals out of control. And this has happened in 2008 with Russia and Georgia. It's happened in other countries. And I think this, again, is part of the problem of, um, in a sense, allowing third parties to decide the big issue. You know, if we, if we can't really control the locals on the ground by saying, this is what the big boys are deciding. And okay, it's a bit harsh on you that you're having decisions made about your fate, but we are going to take your interests into account. But you also have to listen to us, not just being foolish. Time is short. Mark Arman, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News this evening. Thank you. Well, also joining me to discuss this is Colonel John Hughes Wilson, former military intelligence officer and previously advisor to NATO's international political staff. Uh, John, you're joining me on the line, I think. I am. Uh, technical glitches have kept the video off. That's OK. We'll, we'll, we'll go for some wise words and no pretty pictures um, at this juncture. Is this war inevitable, Colonel John? No, it's absolutely not. And I think we are, to be honest, we're being had. We are watching our politicians run around pretending there's a bigger crisis than there is. Uh, because if you think of Sleepy Joe, his popularity ratings were terrible. A war, and just like Boris rushing around Europe trying to save the world, is a lovely distraction from domestic difficulties. So that's point one. Point two is there's a huge difference between intentions and capabilities. Now, anyone can get a photograph of lots of tanks and guns and go, ooh, ah, isn't that awful? They're threatening us. But actually what counts are the intentions of the user. And last but not least, anyone who doesn't understand the position of Ukraine through Russia and pan-Slavism doesn't understand the affection Russians have for what they call the near abroad, Ukraine. And there is no way, no way that the Russians would allow the very policy they've followed since 1945 of having a defensive glassy in Eastern Europe 
to be encroached upon by the Americans or NATO or anyone else. So there is a degree of sympathy for the Russians here, who I suspect are actually just rattling the sabre and frightening and splitting up the West. Yeah, can you explain to me, John, as somebody who's worked uh, for NATO, why does NATO seek uh, to constantly move further eastwards? Isn't that a geopolitical error? Well, I, the answer to that is, to be absolutely honest, I don't know, and I don't think that's what's going on. My own view, and it's just an opinion, is that this was all inspired by the European Union mm. way back in the early 2000s, yeah. trying to move as far east as it could. Now, Ukraine is a step too far. And what we don't understand is any movement since 1945 to take over Eastern Europe by the West frightens the Russians. Stalin spotted this. That's why they formed the Warsaw Pact in 1955. The Russians do not want NATO on their doorstep. No, I completely understand that. And your point about the European Union is well taken. I've made the point over the last couple of weeks that in 2014, the leader of Ukraine was brought down uh, by people waving EU flags. And, and this is all red rags to a bull. John Hughes Wilson, thank you very much indeed for giving us your opinion. So two guests there, folks, uh, both of whom think as I do that perhaps, just perhaps, elements of the media, some of our national leaders in the West, have become somewhat over-hysterical about this and that this conflict is not inevitable. Uh, but I do very much agree with Mark Armand. You know, if we're going to resolve this, both sides are going to have to be seen to make some kind of compromise. Let me know your views, please. Farage at gbnews.uk. Is this war inevitable? I think not. In a moment, we'll discuss Prince Andrew, who this afternoon has come to a, a substantial out-of-court settlement with Virginia Dufre. We'll be joined by a former BBC correspondent on this issue, Michael Cole. We'll try and speculate how much money he's paid and what does this mean for his future in the royal family. Your reactions thus far to the show. One viewer says, if Russia do not do anything, they will look like they're weak little kittens. And from now on, any threats will be ignored as silly little games. In the same way, the world looks on at North Korea. Dave thinks, no mixed signals at all. Putin says, I'm not playing your game anymore. And the Chinese feel the same. Bye-bye, US hegemony. Another says the Kiev regime is the most disgusting, evil and putrid thing on planet Earth. Good Lord. They have given an ultimatum to Russia and for many months they have announced that they want to take back the separatist territories. Well, there is certainly a conflict there. That is true. Peter says nothing will happen. He thinks US military intelligence is wrong. Alan says, is it only me that thinks Putin is testing Biden's response after the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle? Yes, I agree with you. I think he's testing NATO. I think he's testing the United States. And he's absolutely testing and dividing the European Union, uh, where views are absolutely miles apart. Now, a couple of hours ago, we learned that the Duke of York had reached a settlement in principle with 
Virginia Dufresne. Um, he's pledged to give a large donation to her charity. We're told that. We're not told how much money he's going to be giving her. And he has also pledged, Andrew, to demonstrate his regret for his association with Jeffrey Epstein and by supporting the fight against the evils of sex trafficking by supporting its victims. What does this all mean? Well, I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by Michael Cole, former BBC Royal correspondent who conducted Prince Andrew's first TV interview way back now, I guess, in 1986. <laughs> Michael, good evening. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I think it's fair to say that um, this afternoon's um, announcement statement from Manhattan uh, was a right royal surprise, not to say a tremendous shock, because you won't need me to remind you that um, Prince Andrew had indicated that he was going to fight this case and he was going to clear his name. And that case was due to be heard in, in New York in the autumn. And indeed, depositions were supposed to be made next month. Even in the newspapers today, uh, there were stories that his lawyers were asking for the original copy of the infamous photograph of him with the, apparently with his arm around Virginia Giuffre when she was Miss Roberts, uh, with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell standing, smiling in the background. That picture allegedly taken uh, by Jeffrey Epstein uh, all those years ago. And we have to remember it was 21 years ago. Now we've got this um, statement that there has been a settlement, um, and that means, because it's a civil case, not a settlement that results in jail time, but results in the exchange of money. And as you so rightly pointed out, there are two elements of this. There are damages, that's, that's the money bit, that goes to Mrs. Giuffray, who now lives in Australia, and then there is a substantial donation by the prince to a charity uh, which supports uh, victims of crimes of this nature. But there was, uh, it's worth saying, no criminal case here. There was no felony alleged. This was always a civil case, and civil cases are about money. Yeah, I mean, from Prince Andrew's perspective, I mean, he may well, at one stage, have wanted to go to court and try and prove his innocence. And I have to say... I do feel that the British press have sort of judged him guilty all the way through this. Um, and it's been a pretty tough spot for him to be in. But surely this is the right decision in the sense that, you know, as you say, this civil case would have gone ahead in the autumn. Isn't this a way of just getting this all out of the way and allowing him perhaps to get on with the rest of his life? Well, that's certainly the intention, and I would imagine that that is the very strong advice from Buckingham Palace on this matter, although they're saying absolutely nothing about it and would like to say that they are hands-off in this regard. But to get this out of the way before the uh, celebrations of the Queen's um, Platinum Jubilee in the summer, that was obviously the intention. It's, it's, I think, however, a vain hope. There will be tremendous publicity tomorrow, and uh, Prince Andrew is not going to enjoy reading it. I can assure you of that. And it won't end there, because as far as I can understand, there's no non-disclosure agreement tied up in this agreement, and that will leave Mrs. Giuffray free to publish books, uh, make television programs, write articles, uh, do indeed whatever she wishes to do, because um, this um, 
uh, you know, this this statement uh, stops short of an apology, but the the impact of it, the the intent of it, is quite clear. As you say, I mean, he he's, he regrets. In fact, he uses the word regret twice. His uh, yeah. what I would call an abject failure of of judgment to have maintained his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein even after he'd been convicted and was a, a convicted paedophile. And uh, it, it, it's it's as clear as night night is from day uh, that this is a very black day, a very bad day for Prince Andrew, and not a good day for the royal family. No. Well, if there's no, as you say, if there's no non-disclosure agreement, then it won't go away, and that is going to be a problem. On the financial side of this, the Daily Telegraph are speculating that the agreement will be north of $10 million. I, I don't know how true that is or not. Um, but presumably, one of the things Prince Andrew will now need to do is to go out and earn money. Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, the Daily Telegraph, being conservative uh, with a small and a large C, uh, is probably underestimating it. I've already heard one uh, New York lawyer talking about $20 million. Now, where's that coming from? Yeah. Uh, we don't believe that Prince Andrew has got that sort of money in his back pocket, but maybe he has. He, he, the last time uh, Prince Andrew worked for a living was when he was in the Royal Navy. And one might say it would have been a much, much better thing had he stayed in there and made it his whole career uh, as Prince um, Princess Anne's husband, Timothy Lawrence, has gone. And then he at least probably he would have been out of the way of temptation or whatever uh, went on in his life. And certainly it would have been uh, better for him, I think, in all sorts of ways. Uh, it's very, very difficult because um, members of the royal family can never get involved in commercial undertakings without them usually falling apart uh, and not uh, not satisfying their requirements and certainly uh, opening them up to questions, some of which they won't enjoy uh, um, won't enjoy answering. It's a difficult thing. He remains, of course, the Queen's son. That yep. won't change. Allegedly her favourite child. Um, those bonds uh, are, are unbreakable and they shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be broken. Uh, they'll have to find a job for him. It's not like with the Duke of Windsor, they can't send him off to be the governor of the Bahamas or something of that nature. No, first of all, nobody will want him. And I don't believe there's any possibility at all of course, redemption is open to all of us, Nigel. We can all be redeemed at some stage, but it's going to be a long, 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 long road, and he'll have to do something uh, like a, a John Profumo thing. He's going to have to wear sackcloth and ashes. He's going to have to work for a long time before there's any uh, possibility of uh, any a sort of uh, reincarnation, a, a, a new Prince Andrew coming back freshly minted. Looks a long way off, doesn't it? Michael Cole, thank you so very much indeed for joining us here tonight on GB News. Wow. Now, Canada. I've been watching what's been going on in Canada very, very closely. We are now in day 25. Yes, it's 25 days ago that the truckers got ready to send their convoy off to Ottawa. And it isn't just there. There's a bridge blocked with America. There are protests in other Amer uh, Canadian cities. And from the start, these protesters have been branded by the government in Canada as white supremacists, far-right extremists, every pejorative term you can think of 
has been thrown at these people. Even talk today that a lorry was stopped at the border that had guns in it. So every attempt has been made to demonise these people. And yet I've sensed over the last couple of weeks that actually Trudeau is beginning to lose. Uh, because actually, from what I can see of it, the truckers, their supporters, have in the main behaved incredibly well. Certainly incredibly well compared to, let's say, Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. And I guess in a country like Canada, or perhaps even Israel, which has now got its own convoy of truckers, I guess when you look at the United Kingdom, you look at Denmark, and you see that basically all restrictions have been removed, that people are being allowed to exercise their own common sense. It perhaps has a protest that makes you even more determined to say, well, it is my own freedom of choice to decide whether to get vaccinated or not. And so what Trudeau has done in the last 24 hours is to invoke the Emergency Act. It was a piece of legislation originally brought in during the war, updated in the 1980s. Uh, and it gives considerable powers. Indeed, Trudeau's deputy has said they now intend to freeze truckers' personal and corporate bank accounts, suspend the insurance on their trucks and tow their vehicles away. So the Canadian government getting very, very heavy. And I just begin to think maybe this is a sign of them losing. Now, we have had various commentators and journalists on this over the last couple of weeks, but joining me from Canada tonight is Pastor Henry Hillebrand, and he's led a large delegation to Ottawa, and in fact, you've been holding Sunday church services there on top of one of the trucks. So this is the first time we've heard directly from somebody engaged in the protest. Pastor, good evening, UK time, and welcome. Good evening, Nigel. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the government getting really heavy. In fact, I mean, he has said he's not going to send the army in, but he's invoked this Emergencies Act. Uh, dire threats, uh, but, you know, financial threats against those who are taking part in this protest. Um, how has that been taken today by the truckers and their supporters? It is not taken well at all. Uh, we had some good news here, just here. Uh, uh, it said that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association condemns the action of Mr. Trudeau that he did yesterday. So that is a very encouraging thing here right now. And it's like you said, it's absolutely not received well by the truckers at all what he did yesterday because there was no, no necessity for it whatsoever. But does this mean that actually the truckers will now melt away because of these financial threats? They will not melt away because it seems like in the last days, the more the prime minister threats, and really they are threats because he's known for that, the more he threats and he calls this a just a small fringe minority and says they are white supremacists and on and on and on and on. And everybody sees in the pictures, everybody clearly uh, that has been here knows it's the exact opposite. Uh, no, it does not help to melt away the truckers. Uh, it just confirms their stand more that we are under a, a tyrannical uh, oppression here and that it needs to stop. And how was it, Henry? How was it preaching uh, in freezing cold temperatures from the top of a truck? Uh, it's not the usual uh, standing behind the pulpit <laughs> in your little 
meeting house. Uh, but you know what? We have we have for years and years prayed for a revival, and we have prayed for an awakening in Canada, and we welcome it. I say this is it, and it's like the truckers helped us and pushed us over the edge and brought us to a new level that we desperately needed. And for me, it was a tremendous privilege to stand with a black preacher from uh, Quebec and him translating for me into French. I mean, that defied every uh, doctrine of white supremacy here on the grounds. <laughs> it did. And finally, Henry, do you actually think you're going to win this battle against vaccine mandates? So the thing is, Nigel, here we are dealing with, uh, as you saw, the truckers just when they started ahead this way. Uh, it was a truckers convoy, but long before they got to Ottawa, you saw what happened to the Canadian people. They uh, lined the bridges and overpasses. So this now, this now resonates with the whole wide world. Every oppressed person now, past and present, present and future, feels that, that this message resonates with them that we are resisting oppression. So it goes far beyond the mandates, but it, it does include the mandates. Well, it's going to be very interesting. And as I'm sure you know, uh, we have won a bit of a battle here in this country against the vaccine mandate for staff working for the National Health Service, which was supposed to come in on the 1st of April, and that has now been suspended. So I think uh, the worm is turning on this. Uh, and Henry, I want to say a huge thank you for joining us this evening and stay warm. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Indeed. Though I did mention a moment ago Black Lives Matter because um, it has been on my mind ever so slightly, in that you remember what happened in the wake of the horrible death of George Floyd. Uh, everybody, it seemed, across the Western world, or certainly everybody with influence in media and corporate business and, and many tens of millions, um, decided that Black Lives Matter was a wonderful organisation. And people like me who were saying, whoa, you know, this is not about racial equality. This is actually a really, really dangerous Marxist organisation that wants to defund the police force, bring down Western capitalism, put a Marxist government in charge. I mean, those of us like me that said these things at the time were, of course, written off. Well, something else has happened here. It's fascinating to see that the big holding company for BLM received in 2020 $90 million, $90 million in donations um, and it's really good to see, I think, that, that Patrice Coulors, a self-avowed ma Marxist who once called for the end of Israel, and he really is the prime mover behind the whole Black Lives Matter movement, the fact that she's managed, in short order, to buy herself four real estate properties for a value of $3 million, I'm sure we'll all think she's thoroughly deserving. A few more reactions to is war in the Ukraine inevitable? Trevor says, it seems to me that the West is not negotiating its way out of conflict, but rather negotiating its way into it. Do you know, I agree with that. There is a way out of this. Paul says, I understand Putin's concern with NATO spreading east, but looking at past conflicts, NATO are toothless puppets. Well, you say that, and they've just finished a long engagement in Afghanistan. Mark says, as usual, the West looks weak and the Germans are looking very untrustworthy, as if we should have trusted them anyway. Putin is the only leader in control. Sue says, appeasement never works, it may buy time, but will not stop the Russians. Putin cannot lose face at this stage, but the Russian army will not want to attack their fellow neighbours. As I say, you know, any idea 
of a negotiated settlement is by some written off as appeasement. I view it as good common sense that can guarantee peace. In a moment, it'll be Talking Pints. I'll be joined by Stephen Matchett, and he is an entertainment mogul, um, an American uh, superstar, and he's here in the UK looking for a rock and roll revival. All of that in a moment. It is the GB News Tavern time. We're open. It's Talking Pints. I'm joined by Stephen Matchett, American entertainment mogul. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. To GB Thank News you, and Talking Pints. Great to see you. Now, we're going to get into some of the stars that you've worked with over the years. But you kind of almost were born into a celebrity culture, weren't you? You know, All the way. All the way. Your father was involved as a lawyer in the entertainment industry, and you've kind of gone into that. And looking at the list of names, the people you've worked with, you know, Peter Gabriel, Electric Light Orchestra, Bobby Brown, Ozzy Osbourne, Snoop Dogg. Um, who didn't you work with? <laughs> how did you... How do you get to get the trust of these people? I attract them. I... Without, I get into their heads. I understand them. They're dreamers. I'm a dreamer. And dreamers need people that believe in them and encourage them and basically perpetuate them to go do what they want to do. You give them the boundaries. You tell them you'll support them. Because you live in society. And if I'm telling you I'm going to put out romantic music, like when I had the band Soft Cell, yep. you know, yep. no one believed in that band. That took us 16 months to get that out. And that was in the early 80s. But you sit there and you encourage them. You get them to go do it. You get them to do it. You know, Ozzy Osbourne, when he was thrown out of Black Sabbath and we had the blizzard of Oz, you know, my role was to just make sure it happened, to get the business money in, keep Jet Records rotating. But I believe in these artists, and I'll sit with the artist, I'll look him in the eyes like I'm looking at you. Yeah. I'll ask him where the song comes from, what are they seeing, what are they hearing, where do they want to go, who's your audience, what clothing you want to sell them, because you become a lifestyle. And if there's no culture, there's no... There's no life. And right now there is no culture, which is sitting here. How do these people, you know, because you meet some of these people when they're complete unknowns. Yes. And you think, okay, I'm going to back this guy or this girl. How do they cope with that fame when it suddenly happens? A lot of them can't do it. A lot of them can't do it. You know, some of them, they sit and they become reclusive. You know, and if you study it, they have a few years where they're really motivated and they're like really into it. And you could just see... You know, like the Beatles, they had to break up. My father was part of that breakup. And because I talk a lot and I get in the middle and I'm a people person, you know, I, I was able to sit and watch it and I got educated by them. They showed me the Apple contracts. And I, I'm the guy that would get in the middle. I like people. And no I will help you win. <laughs> I do. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I can see why, why people are attracted to that. Now, Leonard Cohen, you actually lived with Leonard Cohen for a bit, I understand. Is that right? I more than lived with him. I mean, my father was his first manager, and yep. Dad, Dad wanted Leonard Cohen to be his younger brother. My father loved Leonard. And what he loved about Leonard was that Leonard didn't care. And he kept looking because you don't understand. You're more like Leonard Cohen than maybe even Leonard Cohen's like Leonard Cohen. <laughs> because I don't care. I've traveled all over the world. I've lived everywhere. He was the wandering troubadour with his guitar. Yep. I'm the wandering dreamer because I believe in a world of love and equality. 
You know, you give people what they need and you allow other people to go create. So it's 1977 and I had just left Vanderbilt Law School and I took the California bar because California doesn't honor any other bar because most people want to live in California. They did. They yeah, did. They right did. then. America. And then downstairs where I'm at right now, Florida is the same story. So I took the California bar and then I wanted to go back to Tennessee to run for the U.S. Senate. I was going to go set it up. That was in my head. My father's like, you ain't doing that. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? And he says to me, just stay with Leonard. So, yeah, I lived with Leonard. We lived, you know, in what's called West L.A. And he's a trip. And we did the album called Phil Spe- the Phil Spector, Leonard Cohen album, Don't Go Home With Your Heart On. And, I mean, he would do one thing and I would do the other. But in our own way, we were similar. He would sit there and tell Oh, woe is me when he was with girls. And I'd be looking at the energy from the girls. And I'm like, this is fantastic, you know? <laughs> and so I got to know him really, really well. And, I mean, even his songs, his songs are so misunderstood. Every time I sit there and I hear hallelujah, yeah. all I could do is just laugh. Because it's not a religious song. It's not a revival song. It's a song, it's 1984. And I'm in New York, and he comes into the house, to the apartment, not the apartment, I'm saying it wrong, into the office. We're at 1501 Broadway, and he comes in, and he plops himself down on the chair, and I guess you're waiting for this, and he says, I did it. I go, what? And, you know, and my father comes running, what would you do, Lenny? He goes, I finally got what I want. He says, I got her. And I'm like, you got who? And he said, who he got? And he says that I wrote a song about it. And he played it's it. Hallelujah. It's Hallelujah. And if you listen to those lyrics, you could hear it's about a man finally getting what he wanted. And he got it. And today when they sit there and they're doing their press and everything, I'm like, this is crazy. You know, and if I do nothing else, I just want every... A much misunderstood yeah. song. But they do it with other songs. It's like the Star Spangled Banner. That was an English theme song. I'll play it. And whatever his name is, Francis Scott, he wrote poetry and he played the poetry to that song. (laughs) You know, talking of music and, 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 you know, politically, we're probably going to have a few disagreements, but it was really interesting. Maybe not. Ahead of 2020, Trump was going around the country doing these huge rallies and music was a massive part of it. And this was the all-American, everything's got to be American, you've got to manufacture in America, you've got to buy America, it's all got to be American. And all these rallies were held at airstrips because of COVID. So the plane would arrive and Phil Collins would start playing and, you know, the plane would land <laughs> and David Bowie would be playing. And it really fascinated me that I thought, well, more of the people singing were actually oh, British. British were actually British. So how close are the British and American music scenes? I'll give it to you an answer. I worked with Phil Collins for many years. Yep. I did a few things with David Bowie. Here's the answer. Your country... And I feel, I feel English. I mean, if I had a second country, I'm an Anglophile. Yeah. I am. You know, I love your country because you believe in dreams and you live a dream. You know, your Prince Andrew story, whatever. All those stories, you have a king and queen. Well, you have a queen and you're about to have a king. Yeah. You know, you believe in the dreams. You get, sell people dreams. You have your castles here. But at the same time, you take people when they're at school and you diagnose them. Are they creative eggs? And you encourage the humanities, you, you encourage their reading, you encourage them playing instruments, you encourage them to dream. And you set it up where, well, you're obviously not going to go do a work in a bank or something, maybe later, 
You, let's, let's get this done for you. And then they're sitting with their own kind, and when they're with their own kind, people who think and dream like that, they create. And when I was young, like Ray Davies was one of my heroes. Those songs in the 60s, yeah. I'm a few years older than you. Yeah. I mean, having him tell me what Waterloo Sunset meant, I mean, that was fantastic. <laughs> or Donovan telling me about Atlantis. And I'm wanting to know what the other seven tribes were when he told me about the five tribes. You know, and he didn't know this other seven. And in my new book called Taking Jesus Off the Cross, I finally figured it out. Your 10th book. You're a prolific writer of books. I can't stop. I love life. I've lived everywhere. And when I go somewhere, I made an album with the Dalai Lama. I made an album with the communist pope that the record labels wouldn't put out. I call him communist pope. The pope <laughs> from Poland, right? With solidarity. But I love life. And your and, country... And you're here in this country now looking at sort of trying to get a rock and roll revival, as I understand it. Rock and roll, what it is, became a generic term. Yep. But I see it differently. A rocker is someone that will shake the system. Yep. A roller that is someone that has the courage to roll with what they rocked. Okay, so like El, uh, Elvis Presley, who I had the pleasure of meeting... He wasn't rock and roll. He was R&B music, you know, and he just could wiggle his he could wiggle his waist. And that was like, oh, my God, look what he's doing. But that was the 50s. They banned jazz music, jazz musician in those times because they were sexy or whatever. That's rock and roll. What did the Beatles do? They came and they rocked the establishment and they had the establishment doing it. And now they're all sirs. All of them came and they tried to beat England out of all their money with their tax schemes and everything. Yeah, they did, yeah. And then what they did is they gave them an access. Okay, if you put your money back in England, it's tax-free. I mean, I learned that game with a couple of the bands that I had in the 70s. I thought it was the most unfair thing in the world. I can't do that in America. America taxes you on citizenship or residency. You tax them here on residency. And then the Queen made them all sirs when they brought the money back here. But yep. But without that part, your country, you've created it, you're it. And I know right now that the system that we're living in, the social media, I know it's not right. Whatever it was when it was created was a means for you and I to communicate, and we could do it outside normal channels, but then it became the normal channels. Mm. And I'm a student wow. of history. It's, it's going quite, it's to quite, fall. It's quite dehumanizing, isn't it, some of this stuff? All the way. Yeah. The, if I go there and I say I'm looking for a record, that computer's telling me what to listen to. I'm against Spotify. It's too big for its own good. It stops creativity. I'm looking for an act that understands what I'm saying. I'm looking for an idealist. I'm looking for a group, a person, people that have a team, a dream. I'll become part of their team. Whatever I can do, they become my legacy. So you're talent spotting. Yeah, I'm looking for something that's just different. I have one band now in America that we're breaking called Rocks Revolt in the Velvets. And I want something here. I love your country. I love being here. And I know oh, the yeah. answer's here. When I was young, my dad had a record label with Tony Stratton Smith, who was one of the most creative people I knew with Charisma Records. I'm listening to Lindisfarne. And Lindisfarne, I'm learning about the history of Scotland. I, stuff's <laughs> crazy. You know, it's, you know yeah. no one knew those words. You're a, you're a great philosopher, a great thinker about life, and that comes out in much of your writing. And you've, you've run as an independent, haven't you, for office in the States a few times. I ran for the U.S. Senate. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> and I started getting on radio without paying radio. They didn't know what to do. And I, I fell in love with Cuba, and I don't understand my country. Why would you put an embargo on them? You know how you end the embargo? You trade with them. 
It would be over in an hour. Well, it's very interesting, actually. The more people trade with each other, the less likely they are ever to want to fight each other. And no, that's, and that's absolutely right. When I you give, at, you give. Yeah. When you look at America, well, if I'm arguing that now about the Ukraine. I'm arguing that we you know have Ukraine a proper means? negotiation. You know. The name? No, I don't. Go on. It me. means borderland. There was no Ukraine until 1991. That's the end of the yeah, Russian yeah, Empire. Yeah. It's the end of the Ottoman Turk Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, which wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire, right? <laughs> you had all these national, all these people sitting there, and they became nationalities. This one hated that one. That one hated this one. And they started killing each other, not understanding. You're the same. You may have different cultures. You're the same people. No, I want us to, I want us to have a proper negotiated settlement. When you look at America... By the way, I would bet on it. Yeah, I, I, I pray so. When you look at America today, as a last thought from you, big divisions in America. You know, the left and right loathing each other in a way that we haven't known. Uh, an increasing lack of respect for the fact someone's got a different opinion. You know, cancel culture, all of this. All of it. Can that pendulum swing back, Stephen? I believe so. And I will do everything I can. I put out every, I've lived all over the world. I put out all the African music, all the South American music. I lived with the Native Indians and I put out their, their ceremonies and chants. All I've ever learned is we're all the same. We're all looking for something. And if we ever learned how to get along together, we could make this place to heaven that it could be living in physical form. Well, on that point, I'm going to say thank you no, for joining me you. on Talking Pints. No, I, I like you. <laughs> that was great stuff. Stephen Matchett. It's nearly the end of the show, and it is time for Barrage the Farage. One viewer asks me, what do you think Trump will face in 2024? Well, I don't think it's going to be Joe Biden somehow. What do you think, Stephen? Is Biden going to run again? I don't think this is my personal yeah, opinion. Yeah. No. No. I, I can't see it being Biden, but it's strange. You know, Hillary thinks she might have another go, and I do think it's, it's a very strange state of affairs when a country like America uh, struggles to find anybody under the age of about 75 who can run for president. It's bizarre. I mean, experience is great, but hey. Another viewer asks me, what do you fancy for this year's Six Nations? I think the French are playing very, very well. Um... Welsh, very, very good. I think France could well win the Six Nations. That is rugby. That's my view. Simon asks, do you think Putin has embarrassed Western leaders? No. Western leaders have embarrassed themselves. You know, you know the Germans lecturing everybody and saying, oh, you mustn't get, you know, Trump mustn't get too close to Russia. Was Brexit caused by Russia? All of which was a hoax. And the truth of it all along is that the Germans were making themselves completely dependent on Russian gas. And that act of stupidity, at the same time as they closed all the nuclear stations, you know, they haven't got enough of their own energy. Um, I think they've made a terrible mistake. And, and that's why you've got European countries slightly falling out with each other at the moment. Jill asks me, petrol prices, is this an underhanded way of forcing us to use electric vehicles? No. The oil price hit 96 bucks on the markets yesterday. I haven't looked at it today, but oil has rallied sharply along with all other commodities. It's part of this inflationary trend. If we hadn't campaigned against the fuel escalator, I can promise you our petrol and diesel would be even dearer. Yes, they want us to go electric, but those cars are very expensive. One last one. 
Andrew asks, can you grade Liz Truss out of 10? Liz Truss, our Foreign Secretary, I'm sorry, I really don't think she's terribly good. Um, all right, Lavrov, the Russian Foreign Minister, was very rude to her in Moscow, but she didn't know her geography, um, and she's still playing the hard woman. We've got to sit down with Putin, negotiate, but a give and take on both sides.